if I'm going to mosque, my mum is always like, don't wear your scarf until you get there. Wait, wait until you get in. And it was exactly the same in London. And I don't. I've never worn it. I've never, ever worn it publicly in this country. I tried a couple of times in London. Even then, I didn't feel comfortable doing it. Am I a good immigrant? And by the way, how do you define one? I mean a good one. Well, the way I see it, I am somehow expected to behave a certain way and assimilate according to some predefined notions set by society. I know I'm judged and reminded of my otherness and it does get tiring at times. I seriously wished there was a moratorium on judgment in this country and everywhere around the world. But then my husband would remind me of how naive I am. And maybe I look at things too simplistically. But seriously, for the past two years, I feel I have to constantly defend my culture, my religion, and my identity. The other day, someone posted on my Twitter feed that I should go back to where I came from. Sometimes I think, who has the time to just go around telling people they should go back to their country? I hope today's guest will help me understand how she deals with the daily ins and outs of being an immigrant. And maybe I can learn a lesson or two. Shimen Suleiman is a writer from London. She's the editor of The Good Immigrant USA and a contributing writer to the original best-selling award-winning British anthology The Good Immigrant. I have read this book and I highly recommend it. It is one of the best books I have read in the recent times and being an immigrant, I can totally relate to it. Shemen's work has also appeared in The Guardian, Independent, Ivy Times, The Quietus, Newsite, and many more. She currently lives in New York. We'll talk to Shemen about her immigrant story. Welcome to The Alien Chronicles. I am your host, Sadia Khan. Welcome, Shemen. I'm so happy to have you on my show. Hi, thank you. So, Shemen, we'll start with your immigrant story. Right. What is your immigrant story? So, I grew up in London born in London, but my parents immigrated from Cyprus. They're Turkish Cypriot. And Cyprus was a British colony and there was a civil war and they migrated kind of in the middle of that, although that's a complex story as well. So I grew up in London and then I migrated to America about four years ago now. So I was around 31 when I got here. And it's interesting. It's like, I feel like being the child of immigrants in London, even though I was a Londoner, even though I was technically British and have a British passport, was almost harder than being an actual immigrant in America because here I have an English accent and that really strangely goes a really long way. How was it harder in London? A lot of London is, is very mixed. There, there are a lot of immigrants and a lot of kids of immigrants there. So there are a lot of spaces in which you feel like you're building your own kind of sense of identity and community just through the default of being sort of this, this shared experience, even if your parents are from different places. But Kind of having to assume yourself as British when you're living in a country that doesn't really want you and has a lot of government rhetoric around the fact that you and your or your parents are somehow very problematic for them makes it a very jarring and isolating experience. So you know that you live somewhere, that you're born somewhere, but somehow you can't really ever fully claim it as your own. And how is it different from that in the US? Like, what are some of the differences? Because it seems like you're more comfortable living here. Well, as I know that I'm an immigrant here. So it was, it's not a problematic thing for me to be called an immigrant here because I am literally an immigrant here. Whereas when you're constantly referred to as being an immigrant in a country that you yourself were born in, that's what becomes kind of jarring and very alienating. 
And you said something about your accent, mm. like that you have British accent mm. and that helps you. It does. In it's what really, ways? It's really strange. People love the accent out here and there's, it's, I think it's problematic, but it's a massive luxury to kind of be treated. Like there's this idea that British people are like very clever and that we're all very, you know, we're very polite and we're very affable. And there's just this assumption that that's what the accent carries. It's really strange. It's so interesting that you say that because one of my guests said something so profound. And she said there is hierarchy of accents. There is. And somehow a British accent, I'm sure, is way up. Oh, right. Without any doubt. But like my accent, mm. despite the fact that I've, I am multilingual, I speak like five languages, yeah. yet my accent somehow brings into question my intellectual capacity. For sure. Uh, which is so, so sad. And it's this really is, I sad. think, more like, I think it's Eurocentric view that Americans have too. And their obsession with Britain and yeah. British. Do you agree? Yeah, there's, there's a huge obsession with like British culture here as yeah. well. In the way that a lot of Americans know a lot about the royal family. Yeah. I, I know virtually nothing about the royal family, but people are obsessed with shows like, you know, The Crown out here and, you know, Downton Abbey and Doctor Who. And they really sort of fetishize it in a way that actually I'm entirely removed from all of that. I don't pay attention to it. So uh, going back to your childhood, you grew up in a household with immigrant parents. Mm -hmm. What was the most embarrassing thing growing up? Was there anything that embarrassed you about your culture or your parents? Was like there this identity crisis going on when all, you were growing all up? All of it, all of it, which is such a shame. Again, the accent thing, I hated the fact that my parents had accents. I mean, their English is superb, but it just, it didn't sound like my English. And I was, you know, I was really embarrassed of that. And I hated the fact that we had lots of Turkish stuff in our house. We had Turkish carpets and we had like Turkish knickknacks and paintings and a lot of color everywhere. I hated it. I hated it. I wanted the blandness that I saw in, you know, my white friend's house. It's like, I, you know, I wanted that kind of the vanilla walls. I didn't want the brightly painted everything everywhere. As an immigrant mother, I can totally relate to it because my daughter, she just somehow wants me to be this white mom. Yeah. I should have an accent that sounds like a white mother. Yeah. I should have a conversation that sounds like white mother. Do you think you grow out of it eventually? Because she's a teenager. Yeah. But do you think you just grow out of it eventually yeah, and you embrace your identity? You do. I mean, when you're a teenager, you hate everything anyway, yeah. don't you? Like you're embarrassed of absolutely everything at that age. But no, I, def I definitely grew out of it. I think by the time I was in my, my mid-20s or maybe even earlier than that, I definitely started to feel more comfortable. I think, you know, what, what changed for me? I grew up in a, in a very white, sort of upper working class, like lower middle class neighborhood. There were a lot of immigrants there as well, but they were like Irish or Italian immigrants. Um, were a lot of Jewish immigrants as well. And then when I was sort of in my mid-20s and I started doing poetry, which is kind of where my career started, I started doing a lot of spoken word. And I found myself around a lot more people of color and a lot more kids of immigrants as well. And a lot of the work that they were making and the conversations they were having were about that. And I suddenly like was allowed to realize my identity and I was in a space that I felt safe enough to be like, oh, okay, that's a shared experience. And I can talk about my ethnicity and my, you know, my religion and my parents being immigrants here. And I've seen your work and it's amazing. I, I follow your Twitter feed, which is, which is just so informative, but <laughs> yet you. so like blunt and bold. And I think that's, <laughs> that's so important for us as women and as women with so many layers of identity. But like growing up, because you said that you just wanted to blend in, what were some of the things that you tried to change? Was, were, were you making an, a conscious effort to change yourself to be more white? Yeah, I used to mispronounce my last name quite a lot. 
We did. I used to, yeah, I never used to pronounce it as Suleiman. I used to, I always used to pronounce it where it was slightly closer to Solomon almost. Yeah, I mean, also when, when you're growing up in a, in a community, I definitely, I, I hid the fact that I was Muslim or that my family were Muslim. I never really wanted, my mother was never practicing, but I never wanted to have a conversation about, you know, my grandmother wearing a, a covering her hair or about my relationship with that to the point where actually I was having a conversation with a friend only a few weeks ago when I was back in London last week, in fact, and he's known me a long time. And he seemed shocked with the fact that I'm quite comfortable in calling myself Muslim now, because in, even in my early 20s, it was something that I massively shied away from. I sort of just didn't want to, I don't know if I did things to make myself whiter, like physically, but I definitely erased a lot of heritage and a lot of culture. I didn't want to talk about a lot of things that, that made me different. Why were you embarrassed of being a Muslim initially? Like, what was it that made you feel like that? I think when 9-11 happened, I was already quite late into my teens. So it was something that I was aware of even before of that. I don't know. I wouldn't have had the vocabulary to articulate it at the time. But there was always this sense and always this feeling that we were seen as barbaric and strange and savage. And I didn't understand the politics when I was a child. But I felt it. Like I knew that it was there. And I think my mum felt it too. I think she herself tried to remove herself back then, not not now, but certainly in the 80s and the 90s, there was distance from her. And I think I picked up on her distance. Even to this day, and I think, I don't know if you notice it in the US, but that's how Muslims are portrayed. Mm -hmm. e even today, yeah, even yeah. more so. I don't know. I, I wasn't so. here in 80s and 90s, so I wouldn't know. But And I think this, again, this this claim, this Western claim to intellectualism and this fact that we are more civilized and we have to just, like, we have to help other mm -hmm. nations or races mm -hmm. achieve the same. Mm -hmm. It's sad mm -hmm. at times. But let's talk about your book. I am obsessed with it. By the way, I am not a reader. I am a listener. I listen to podcasts and that's why I started one. But when I bought your book, I couldn't put it down. It was like every essay is so relatable and it talks about culture and identity and race. And if you're an immigrant, if you're a child of immigrants, if you are interested in immigrants, this book is for you. So, Shemin, how would you define a good immigrant? Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting one because the title itself is a tongue-in-cheek title yeah. because we're basically trying to confront the fact that the default setting of the immigrant is that we're bad and that we all come here and there's a lot of suspicion surrounding the immigrant and we've got to really do these sort of these superhuman things before people sort of allow us in as being the good immigrant. You, know, you win an Olympic medal, you become a famous sportsman. We saw in France someone scaled a wall to yeah. save a child dangling from a balcony and then he was given citizenship. You know, you've, you've got to have superpowers. And then they're like, oh, OK, well, you're one of the good ones. That's fine. Beyond that, on a day to day level, I think the thing that we wanted to kind of look at is the fact that you don't have to jump through hoops to be allowed your humanity and that you don't have to always be consistently grateful to be given the opportunity to just live like everyone else is doing. Also, not to apologize for everything. Right. I just find myself apologizing for everything like apologizing for my name because every time I go out, I have to pronounce it and I right. have to spell it out. Right. And I had a friend who's, she's Jewish American and she and I went for lunch one day and they asked her for her name and she just gave her name and that was it. And then I was standing there pronouncing it and spelling it out and she was shocked and she was like, you, do you have to go through this every time? Yeah. And I said, yes. yes and then time. I have to apologize for my accent because sometimes I think, oh, people don't understand me and, and I have to be more clear. And the irony of it is that as immigrants, at least the way I see it, we are all risk takers. We leave our blood relations back. We venture into new horizons. We try to explore the world. 
And the minute we land where we're supposed to land, all of a sudden we become risk averse. We don't want to talk about politics, our religion, our race. It bothers me. Do you see that among immigrants and immigrant families? Oh God, um, yeah, very much so. I think what you said is a really good point because one of the things that I noticed in editing this book and also being a part of the original collection and just in being around people and speaking to people, immigrants are so resilient. Like, if you want to talk about like the superpowers before you're allowed to be the good immigrant, like the superpower is leaving everything you love to start yes. again. That already is the superpower. And it's such a shame that we get denied that and that we sort of, that we are sort of reduced to becoming these weak caricatures by mainstream media and everyone else who wants to talk about us and over us when there's so much strength and so much sadness that already comes with leaving everything that you love and, and leaving your home and your family behind. And then you're not allowed to talk about those things because you're too busy defending your right to be in a place that you're already sometimes really sad to be in already anyway. And you're expected to assimilate right away. Yes. And you shouldn't have to. And you shouldn't have to, right? So during this process of like co-editing this book, what was one thing that you learned about immigrants that you didn't know before? Like, I'm sure you learned many, but just one thing that stood out to you. I don't think I realized just how many people, regardless of what communities or race they were, felt like they belonged to everything and to nothing. I think that, I guess, shocked me in a way, because that was a thread that just existed throughout all of the 26 essays in the US book, existed in all of the 21 essays in, in the original English book. And yeah, it just didn't seem to matter what gender, what sexuality, what race, whether you were first, second generation. There was, everybody was like, I don't know. I don't know where I fit in. I don't know who I am. I'm a little bit this. I'm a little bit that. A little bit nothing. Like, and, th and that saddened me, but was also a relief because that sort of made me feel like, that we were the community, you know? Absolutely. And that's what I learned from your book. Because I always thought that because of my religion and because of where I come from, probably I feel like that. But then, as you said, there were so many stories where I would not have expected them to feel the way they did. Yeah. Which is, again, so important to understand because we immigrants come in all shapes and sizes. Mm -hmm. They, But their experiences somehow are more similar than we would have thought otherwise. Right, right. Like one of the things that we wanted to do with both collections was to allow for there to be a space for contradiction as well. Because we don't want to suggest that there is just, there's just one en masse immigrant story and that there are lots of different narratives. However, like you said, there are more similarities than not. And I think that's something that made me feel comfortable in London, I suppose, growing up, where I realized that like my community didn't necessarily have to be like, the Turkish Cypriot immigrant community or like the Middle Eastern community or the Muslim community, that as immigrants or kids of immigrants, you were, you were sharing something special anyway, that you were all sort of sharing the same response or reaction to your parents or to language or to the food. And that that of itself became its own, I don't know, for want of a better word, nationality. And I think and that's why books like this one are so important mm -hmm. because we at some point, we have to take charge of our own narratives. Yeah. And I think you're doing that through this book and all the writers are doing that in mm -hmm. that book. And all of us, sometimes it gets hard when you listen to the narratives, like when you're being presented a certain way or portrayed a certain way, which is not true, mm -hmm. which does not represent who you are. But then you're just you're stuck with those narratives because there aren't many who are trying to take charge of those narratives and present their absolutely. own. Absolutely. Absolutely. 
So going back to your Twitter feed, as I said, I go through it almost every day and it's <laughs> spot <sweet>. on. And, <laughs> but there's one tweet that really spoke to me and it did stir up some controversy yes, as well. Yes. And I will quote it so that listeners know what it is all about. So this is with regards to New Zealand terrorist attack. And this was when New Zealanders were wearing headscarves and hijabs uh, to show solidarity with Muslim women. And you tweeted about it. You said, I get the sentiment and I'm grateful for the solidarity, but I find non-Muslims wearing headscarves uncomfortable. I fear it's actually insensitive to Muslim women, consistently scared to cover our hair, but have to watch the fearlessness displayed by white women making a statement. This, Shamin, is so incredibly true. Because I'll give you an example. When this was happening, there was this whole conversation about, you know, even in the U.S., women wanted to wear headscarves. And I don't wear headscarf. Many Muslim women don't. don't. Just to be clear, we are not a monolith group. Nope. And I was like, okay, I'll wear headscarf because I'll show solidarity with other Muslim women. And I couldn't. And the reason I couldn't, because I live in Burbs in New York, and it's predominantly white mm -hmm. community. And I thought if I wore it, I will be perceived very differently. Mm -hmm. And people will look at me not with like, they won't celebrate me and they won't be happy about what I'm doing, Absolutely. but they will judge me. Mm -hmm. And so can you elaborate on what were you thinking when you wrote this? And then we can like, talk about this a little more. Yeah, I felt like you did. There was something almost quite painful about it. And there's something painful about the response in which white women wearing the headscarf were celebrated and sort of venerated for doing it in a way that this is something that actually has Muslim women killed, that has Muslim women assaulted in the street whenever there is a terrorist attack done by someone who has done it in the name of Islam. It is typically Muslim women who are the ones that, or visibly Muslim women, women who wear hijabs, who are attacked and assaulted for it. And Muslim women are, I would say, even more so than visibly Muslim men, are the mm -hmm. ones that are the target of a lot of really degrading conversations around the religion. Muslim women are always, we're oppressed. You know, of course there are aspects, like where there are men, there will always be oppression. <laughs> you know? And yes, there are men who, regardless of what race they are, what religion they are, that will tell their wives or their daughters how to dress. And whether that is telling them to wear a hijab or wear, telling them to wear a, a longer skirt, you will always have that. And regardless of what community or what religion or whether you're atheist or not, for the most part, Muslim women have just as much agency and power, if not more so, dare I say it, than other women because they are facing this every single day and saying like, I'm, you know, this is my faith. This is also my political response to something. I think that's incredibly powerful, but that we are never, ever celebrated for it in the same way. And like you said about that fear, when I was watching it and when I was watching the response that people were giving to these women, it's not the gesture that I object to. I'm not even, I don't want to come for the white women who wanted to you know, to show solidarity. But I don't approve of the celebration around them because all I could think of was every single Eid when my parents now live, they've moved back to North Cyprus. They're in a Muslim country again. They're far more relaxed there. with everything in life. And every single time we speak to each other on the phone, if I'm going to mosque, my mum is always like, don't wear your scarf until you get there. Wait, wait until you get in. Don't walk, you know, down. Even Bed-Stuy, I live in, I'm in Brooklyn. Like, you know, don't until you get there. And it was exactly the same in London. There was such a, and I don't, I've never worn it. I've never, ever worn it publicly in this country. I tried a couple of times in London. Even then I didn't feel comfortable doing it. I wait until I'm in mosque and that's it. Or I'm in Cyprus and then it's different if I'm in a Muslim country. But here and in the UK, never. And it's 
painful to then see the confidence of white women who just kind of fling it on like they're wearing like this badge of honor, this good guy sticker. And they walk around and people are like, yes, bravo, like, well done. Thank you for this. I'm like, where's, where's our applause? Like, yeah. or, or just leaving us alone, if not applause. Why not just let us be? And I think it's, it's not just hijab. Like when on Eid, if I wear, we wear traditional dresses, right. right? And when we go to the mosque or wherever we are celebrating Eid, I will wear the traditional dress. I'll go. And then I feel so uncomfortable going anywhere else wearing that. I have to come home, change, and then and I then go, go out. out. Right. So if you want to help Muslim women step in when they are being harassed, yes. smile at them. Those yes. who are wearing hijab, just yes. smile at them. Don't stare at them. Yes. And I think that's how you show solidarity because Absolutely. then you're making them comfortable in, in their own space. Yes. And solidarity also means that you have to understand the nuances that come with oppression and racism. That like, yes, your good gesture isn't enough. And also your good gesture isn't enough when your silence has been complicit up until this point. And you sticking a hijab on and now saying, I'm here with you, doesn't remove your complicity up until this point either. You know, we have reached this point where how many people, 50, 51 people was it, who were murdered? in, you know, what should have been their, their safest space, which hurt us, which is how so many of us have been heartbroken from that. So many of us. And you don't get to say that you are not a part of the community that led to this form of terrorism against us because silence, you are complicit with that silence. And white people, well-meaning white people, have been complicit in allowing this narrative to continue. You cannot put a headscarf on, as well-meaning as you may well be, and say, well, this, this is it. This is me done now. This, I'm here for you. If you're here for us, like you said, step in when you see something. Be a physical and a verbal shield. Educate people so that we're not the only ones always, like the, the emotional, educational labor, always on us for free. When you hear your friends say bigoted things about Muslims or the hijab, tell them that they're wrong. Tell them why they're wrong. We don't need you to cover your hair to accept your solidarity. We need you to do the work. And also not to judge women who wear hijab as oppressed. Absolutely. Because there are so many women who wear it out of their own will, free will. Absolutely. It is part of who they are, their identity. Absolutely. And then there's always this, oh, Muslims are nice or whatever, but. And there's always a but to just get rid of that. Absolutely. Just try to understand them, and especially Muslim women. It really bothers me yeah. when I see that women like you and I, I don't hear stories about us. It's never those who are expressing their own agency, it's always the, the oppressed ones. Well, that's, that goes back to the title of the book and what it means to be, the, you know, the good immigrant. I'm a good Muslim. I, but you, you might well be seen as a good Muslim too because I fit in to a Western narrative in my appearance. I'm light-skinned. I have tattoos. I drink. I don't do the things that are expected of Muslim people or Muslim women. So therefore, I'm, you know, I'm, well, I'm one of the good ones then because I don't fit into the narrative that consumes media. But she meant the way I see it, I think they will say you're not. And I've had this, this issue where people will ask me, oh, so you're not a practicing Muslim. Right. And that's another thing. They will not consider you a good Muslim. They will probably say that you don't even believe in the religion and that, that you, you come and, they, and you, yeah. don't, you won't yeah. be characterized as right. Muslim. Right. And that bothers me even more. Yeah. And as you said, I have a tattoo. I don't cover my head. But I, mm -hmm. I pray five times. That's my spiritual journey. Mm -hmm. But if I were to say that to others, they'll be like, oh, so if she's a practicing Muslim, then there's something wrong with her. Mm. Then, then she is either oppressed mm -hmm. or she believes in all the barbaric mm -hmm. and the outdated mm -hmm. notions of what it yeah. means to be a Muslim. You're a terrorist. You're a terrorist or whatever, yeah. right? 
So I think people like you and I, if they look at us, they won't even characterize us as Muslims. No, probably not, actually. You're right. You're absolutely Unless right. we are like very vocal about it, the way mm-hmm. you are mm-hmm. and the way I try to be. Mm-hmm. So I think, and that's also very important to speak up. Uh, Many, like, at least for me, I don't know about you, but for me, I started speaking up after 2016 elections because I felt that I was just so annoyed with all the negative rhetoric around immigrants and Muslims and Muslim ban and all that nonsense. And I was like, you know what? We have to take charge of our own narratives. And this is the time to do that. You are an immigrant in America, right? Mm -hmm. So, and I ask my guests this question always. If you were to describe America in one word, what would it be? Oh, God. Selfish. In what ways? I mean, I moved here under Obama, but I was only here when Obama was president quite briefly. I, I sort of went, I wasn't here for that long when it sort of went straight into Trump's campaign. And as soon as it went into Trump's campaign, everything changed, even before he was elected. And I feel that with that, I can't really speak about America before that. I can only really speak since 2016. When you have someone who is telling everybody that it's okay to just think about you and everything has just become about looking after your best interest. And I I find that even people who aren't Trump supporters, it feeds into your everyday living and it feeds into your everyday life. And I feel that America has become a lot more divisive without even realizing it, even amongst people who who don't support the rhetoric that the president gives us. People are out for themselves. And either because they feel it's their opportunity to take back America, whatever that means, or because they're terrified of having things taken for them, taken from them rather. I think everyone has just sort of retracted. I don't really feel like the narrative that's being projected and asked for is, is one of, of greater community. The way I see it, and I've been here for 17 years, I feel like America was in some ways like this before Trump as well. I think it was more implicit. It wasn't as in your face. Mm. And he gave those people a platform and a voice. But and I've said it on so many shows, America has to reconcile with its history. Yeah, absolutely. And if it doesn't, and this is, I think, one of the reasons why What happened, happened, because I think we have to recognize that America has a racist past. Of course. And despite being one of the most amazing countries in the world, and and there are so many opportunities and there's so much that you can do, there are things that we have to address and there are issues that we have to address. And I think all of us give him too much credit. I agree with that. All of this existed before him. Yeah, he didn't come from nowhere. Yeah. Are you hopeful for future? Yes, but not for a long time. I think the damage has been done for quite a few years. And I think the same actually of England as well. I think once you unleash white supremacist voices that admittedly have been there all along, but once you give them a platform, I think it takes a minute to rein that back in again. I'm worried things will get worse before they get better. I think I'm basing that largely on on what history looks like and what history tells us around the world. I feel like we're sort of in the middle rather than near the end. What do you think people like us should do or can do to change that? I think fighting for representation and having our voices heard is a really, really important thing because like you touched upon earlier, if the only things that people are hearing are Muslims look like this, black people behave like this, Asian people study like this, then I don't want to say that like you can't blame them because there is a responsibility there to not fall into that. It does become harder to expect people to recognize that there are people that, that are different to this. And the more that you show 
people who don't fit those narratives and who don't look like that and who don't behave like that and are complexed and are nuanced and are three-dimensional, just like the stories and narratives that we see of, of white, able-bodied people with universal stories to tell, that we are just as boring and just as heartbroken <laughs> and, you know, just as skint as everyone else is. I think at that point, it will become easier for people to not have targets anymore because then you won't know what you're targeting. Fine, you'll hear a story about one Muslim who does one thing, but mm. you will also have heard 80 stories about Muslims who aren't that. We don't have those other 80 stories right now. And that's why we're living in such a polarized world, I would say, not just America. But I think, yeah, to keep fighting, to have more of a voice and to be in charge of our own narratives and to not wait to be allowed to tell our stories. I think that's something that a mistake that I definitely made for, for a large part of my life and my career. I waited for people to let me in. And it wasn't really until the original book came out, which was crowdfunded and goes to show how much people actually really needed a book like that and needed to see themselves. Just don't wait for the door to be open for you. Just be like, no, I'm sorry, I'm saying it. I'm here. Make your own podcast, write your own book, start your own Twitter account, start a blog. Just keep telling people who you are. Don't wait for people to ask you. Absolutely. And for those listeners who want to know more about your book, I got it from Amazon. Where mm -hmm. can they get it from? Well, we're in Barnes and Noble. We're in, to my knowledge, we're actually in, in most uh, bookstores in and around New York and online as well. And if you're in the UK, we've just released the edition there as well. And you can get it from Waterstones or Foils or again online. So Shaman, now we'll move on to my rapid fire round. Mm -hmm. So that's the fun thing where we lighten the mood and mm -hmm. we'll ask you some fun questions. Okay. And again, the idea is to get to know you more. Okay. Short answers, reading books or listening to music. Ooh, both. I read more when I'm writing more or just before I'm about to write something. I read a lot kind of in preparation. But then when I'm writing, I listen to a lot of music. And I'm like, you're a poet and you're a writer. And yeah. I'm sure like reading comes to you naturally, right? Yeah. For me, it's like, uh-uh, I, I just can't read. I don't know why. No, I get that. I know a lot of people who are like yeah. that. If you could only eat one food for the rest of your life, what would it be? Oh, it's got to be meat-based. Probably like a slightly bloody red meat. Really? Yeah. I am just like, I've, I'm trying to become vegetarian. Uh -huh. I don't know if I can do that because I come from a culture where <laughs> you just eat so much meat. My husband is just so annoyed and he'll be like, I cannot do that. So just do it on your own and don't include me. Yeah, I, I, I feel like if I told my family I was vegetarian, they wouldn't know what to do with that. Like, I, I'm sure if I told my parents, my, my parents would be shocked. Um, but I'm trying to do that. Name three things on your bucket list. Oh, that's interesting. I, do you know what? I really, really want to go on holiday, just somewhere beautiful and hot and where I'm, I'm not working. I want to go see a lovely Caribbean island somewhere. What else? Do they have to be work-related? Can work come into Sure, it? yeah. Or I'd like to move from writing books to writing stuff with a screen. That's definitely something I'd like to see my work presented yeah. back to me. That's number two. Number three... Oh, this one's silly. I want, I want to get a pet. <laughs> I want an animal around me. I want a cat or a dog. <laughs> Which one? Would, oh, a cat or a dog. A cat or a dog. Cat or a dog. Maybe a cat at this point because it's, it, they're slightly easier to look after. Yeah. If you could have any superpower, what would you want? Oh, I want to be able to fly because I'm late for everything. Aren't you like I am scared of flying? I'm scared. I'm scared of getting. Yeah, I hate planes. I hate planes. But if I was in control yeah. of my own flying, <laughs> if I suddenly had like my own wings that came out. That would be great because then I wouldn't be late for absolutely everything all of the time. You're moving forward failure, something that taught you a lesson. This, I don't know if it's, it's my, yeah, no, I guess this counts. 
I think the first time I was ever heartbroken, that taught me that feeling of losing, of failing at something that was so important, I think taught me to take bigger risks and is actually what made me start writing because it's something that I always wanted to do and I didn't have the strength to do it and I didn't think that people like me could ever do it. And then I lost what I thought was just the most important thing to me in the world. And I was like, well, there's no point just being scared anymore because that's gone anyway. So let's try and work through some other stuff that I was scared of. And if you were to describe yourself in three words? Oh, God. Silly, actually, surprisingly, which never comes across in my work ever. (laughs) Probably self-aware and resilient, I think. What's the best piece of advice you ever got? It was from my parents. I did that thing that a lot of immigrant kids do, which is that I, I, you know, I wanted to be a doctor or a lawyer or, a, you know, whatever to keep the aunties happy. And, <laughs> but I loved writing as well. And I was always like, I'll become a doctor, but I'll write books on the side as like a hobby. And my parents were like, that's not a hobby. That's not a side job. Like if you become a doctor, then you can kiss writing goodbye because it's, you're going to be way too busy. That's going to take your life up. So if you want to write, put yourself in a position where you can be a writer and let that be your career. And I, even though I was scared and I didn't believe them, I guess on some level it sunk in. Yeah. And it's surprising though that your parents thought that way mm. because many parents, immigrant parents, again, being conservative and safe in their choices right. that they are, they would either want you to be a doctor or an engineer. They want you to be able to be sort of self-sufficient yeah. as well and to be able to, you know, I made the joke about, you know, keeping the aunties happy and there is an element of truth in this. But, <laughs> but also I think it's about the fact that when you give up so much when you risk so much and especially if you if you yourself are not you know most immigrants work incredibly hard but their finances don't necessarily reflect how hard they work you want your kids to have the sort of financial security and credibility that they themselves didn't have but I think with my parents it went the other way they were both very creative people who gave up being creative to work actually they were both radiographers so I grew up in hospitals anyway so they sort of knew what it was to be a healthcare professional at the expense of being creative people. My dad used to write poetry. My mum is an incredible painter. My dad is too. And I think maybe they came at it from from that angle, that they knew what it was to to give up that creativity. To give up that dream, right? Your favourite emoji? My favourite emoji. Oh, it's the it's the sort of blush face one with the hands that come out. At yeah, the side. I like that too. I really, there's something quite smug about that one. I really like that. Guy. And best Turkish restaurant in New York? In New York, Liman in uh, Sheepshead Bay. Tea or coffee? Oh, tea if I'm in England. Turkish coffee anywhere else? I've tried Turkish coffee. It's bitter, right? It is bitter. So you have to put a lot of sugar in it, right? You can do. There I three, did that. There are three different ways. Yeah. You can either have it without sugar, a little bit amount of little bit of sugar, or a lot of sugar. I do somewhere in the middle. And home is uh, London. Oh, so do you plan to go back one day? E- yes, I think so. I would like to get to a stage in my life where I can live between New York, London and North Cyprus where my parents are. But that obviously is that requires a lot of money, which I don't have. Um, (laughs) But if I'm honest, my heart is in London. I grew up there and I know the language, if that makes sense. Thank you so much, Shaman. This was absolutely amazing. And I would urge my listeners, please go and buy this book. It is such an incredible book. And Every story will will teach you something new about immigrants, their children, about immigrant experiences. And I would like to thank all the listeners for listening to my pod. Stay tuned for our next episode when we will bring to you another immigrant story. And in the meantime, stay connected. <laughs>